This episode of the AD History Podcast is brought to you by you, our amazing patron. Thank you for supporting the show and helping us create the AD history you deserve. We could not do it without you. My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the armies of the north, general of the Felix Legions, loyal servant to the true emperor, Marcus Aurelius, father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. This is the AD History Podcast, weaving a tapestry of world history from 1 AD to HD. Powered by TGNR. Get your good news that's real news at TGNR by visiting tgnreview.com. Now here are your hosts, Paul K. DiCostanzo and Patrick Foote. And brought to you via London and New York City, you are listening to the AD History Podcast. I am Paul Katie Costanzo, and I am joined by my co-host, Patrick Foote. And how is everybody's favorite YouTube's number one Leon Trotsky impersonator today? I am a good Paul. I am very much in the festive season, as I'm sure the viewers can see by what I'm wearing at the moment. And as much as I look in the season, my voice might not sound as much in the season. As it's getting towards the end of the year, it only makes sense that my throat is just on the cusp of giving out of itself before I take some time off for the holiday. So if I sound a bit groggy and a bit deadpan, that's the reason why. But trust me, inside, I'm super, super excited. Paul, how are you feeling? I, I can't complain. Happy to be here today. And this is one of our favorite things to do, mm-hmm. which, of course, is our mid-season break. Always necessary, especially this one, considering all the hard work and all the changes that have occurred Mm. in this time. Something that we most certainly do keep in mind here. And that, of course, is another edition of AD History Watches. This is a long time coming, this one. In so many ways. In so many ways is it a long time coming, because... We are finally getting into, as you might imagine it would happen at one point, (laughs) the year 2000 epic Gladiator. Ridley Scott, Russell Crowe, Joaquin Phoenix, a absolute beast of a movie. It really is. It's it's one of those sort of era-defining films, isn't it? And something that struck me with this film... um, it's not something we really get too much anymore. And this film really sort of helps spur on a real movement at times, like those early 2000s epics. There were quite a few knocking around at that time in history. You had things like Troy, um, 300 was a bit later on, Master and Commander, even like the Pirates films, and like even Love the Rings to an extent. There was this really boom period in the early 2000s for like these big epic dramas that they, they don't really seem to exist too much anymore i think they even released they did a remake of ben Hur ben Hur a few years back and that did really poorly at the box office there just isn't an interest for this kind of movie anymore it seems but in the early 2000s it was and gladiator is seen as sort of something that really kick-started that trend it was definitely landmark in its own way. And of course, one of the big reasons it's so landmark is what is now, for the most part, a lot of very dated looking CGI. Yes. <laughs> Impressive. Even though they 
even it is, well, it is mm. and it's also important to note though they did go a long way in terms of implementing practical effects yeah the film looks stunning not accurate and that's going to be something we're going to be saying a lot through this thing not accurate by any means and not but a it, does, it looks amazing and if you're watching this just as a popcorn munching movie fan it's a great sort of epic flick However, if you're and if you're going to watch this film and put your well actually hat, I like to say like well actually and and know the history behind yeah. it. Yeah, this film falls flat on its ass because some of the stuff it does, some of the stuff it tries to get away with, is astounding. At least I thought so. It's, anyway, it's it, it, it's overwhelming to, to say the least. There's so much to it. And I want to get to this conversation, but you look like you got something to say. I was going to say, so you'd seen this film before, hadn't you? Yeah. Oh, many times. Yeah. This is my and first. I, I remember seeing it in theater. Gosh. So this was my first viewing. So I would have been about five or six. This was your first viewing? I know the, I know the highlights. Um, I'd seen it in the background. So I was about five or six when this film first came out. So um, I would have seen it at the cinema, but um, I knew like, you know, the big bits, but I'd never actually sort of properly sat down and watched it in in one go I say in one go I watched this over multiple sittings because I watched the extended edition Paul when I do something I don't do half measures so if I mention things yeah, you or the viewers don't know that's the reason why I watched the big three hour extended version of this film because I'm a maniac but no it was very interesting watching this for the first time well, I mean just in its normal theatrical cut it's mm. still an incredibly large movie yeah but we're going to get into the meat and bones of this movie in just a moment. But with all of that in mind and all of it out of the way, it is time to lay down our necessary, obligatory, now legendary AD History Podcast Ground Rules. 1. Evaluate events in the context they occurred. 2. Over the span of recorded history, the way it was recorded, its methodology, and the facts that are important have changed immensely. How we view history today is not necessarily how we viewed it 50 years ago. 3. Nothing in history was inevitable. And 4. History and the past is like a different country. Okay, Mr. Foot. We start, you know, I think you kind of have to start off by saying here. Mm. Okay. That... This is a historical film insofar as there was somebody that was the emperor of Rome that was named Marcus Aurelius, that there was somebody that was an emperor of Rome whose name was Commodus, um, and there were gladiatorial battles fought in Rome. Yeah. I mean, th and that's kind of where it ends. I was shocked. So spoilers for this 21-year-old film, guys. Um. I was yeah, shocked. seriously, if you haven't seen it at this point, shame yeah. on you. Shame on <laughs> yeah. you. Um, I was shocked at how much this this went away from the history. Because we know historical fiction. Historical fiction is a great thing. And historical fiction normally involves making up scenarios and characters. But these scenarios and characters fit into the grand actual history. They don't really ever affect the events. And, and that, that's where you get to the era of like speculative history sort of fiction. Your things like your man in the man in high castle, even oh, like that's alternate history. Alternate history, up. yeah. And even things like Inglorious Bastards, where Hitler meets his demise in quite a different way. This film uh, Yeah, you could say that. This film goes into alternate history in my eyes. I was shocked by the end. Like this 
It's an interesting way to think about it. I was, unless I, yeah, unless I'm misremembering the actual history, I was shocked about how this film went, especially towards the end. But it starts off somewhat accurately. So, like many sort of epic films, a gladiator introduces us with a text scroll. It's not even a scroll, just some text on the screen explaining um, what the hell is going on. What the hell is going on, indeed. And it introduces us to 180 AD and uh, barbarian wars. And from what I could gather, this actually happened. Uh, there were barbarian wars in 180 AD. Yeah. And it says that Rome was at its grandest, its most magnificent. And that was true. But 180, 180 AD is very much like the end of that golden period. It's a really interesting time to set a film about Rome in. Because when you want to talk about Rome, you want to talk about the empire, the glory. Um, This is literally just as things are about to go downhill. This is right on the end of the Pax Romana. If you look at most sources, most sources agree that the Pax Romana, the golden age, whatever you want to call it, ended in 180 AD. So it's a really interesting era of yeah. Roman history to pick. Yeah, so in this case... Marcus Aurelius, and we've talked about Marcus Aurelius <laughs> yeah. before in Commodus, so, albeit it was about 11 months ago. But. Yeah, so everything we cover in this uh, episode, in this review of the film Gladiator review, if you want to call it that, it, yeah. we've covered in actual the actual history in previous AD history episodes, so that really helps out as well. It, it does, it does. So in this case, the actual Marcus Aurelius died right around modern day Vienna in about 180 AD, mm. and it's largely thought that he probably passed from Antonine Plague. And in this case, one thing that is roughly consistent with history is that he was essentially on campaign with the army fighting uh, the Marcomanni, mm. one of the, those main Germanic tribes that they were fighting at the time. And, of course, Commodus most certainly does not murder his father. No. There is no talk about a succession struggle for one very simple reason. Commodus can't be kept from power because Commodus is already in power. They're co-emperors. And something I found absolutely shocking was this whole uh, Marcus Aurelius was like, I'm, I don't want Commodus to be emperor. I want you, Maximus, to be kind of like emperor. I want to, it was this whole, I want to restore Rome back to a republic. Like, which is total bollocks, by the way. That was, I, I was, my mouth, my jaw dropped when I heard that. I was like, this dude, like this, this, he was a great emperor, but he was the last of the five good emperors. He, he was the exact opposite. He was more emperor than previous ones. He literally gave the throne, and he was the most traditional of emperors we'd had for five years because he literally gave the throne to his son, his actual non-adopted yeah. birth son. Yeah, that's about as far away from republic sentimentalities as you could be. I, I think where they were kind of trying to draw from in this case mm. is the fact that Marcus had. Uh, notably a very good, cordial, and productive relationship with the Senate. Mm, yeah. But there is nothing to suggest whatsoever that he was looking to go back to the Republican form of Rome. Mm. At this point, the Republic has not existed for a, almost, if not two centuries, maybe even slightly longer than that. Mm. That would be a huge yeah. freaking jump to be able to try to accommodate to the point in which it is, is abjectly silly. On top of the fact, once again, Commodus is already in power and there's and he prepared him for that. Yeah. And it, I was just so shocked by it. But I'd love to talk a little bit about this opening battle scene because 
something. Oh, there's like, a lot to say there. Yeah, and it, we don't know how accurate it is, but it's great to see a Roman battle with our own eyes. We we, we often just yeah. sort of talk about war. So we often say in this podcast, and then there was a war, and this happened. But to actually see that blood and guts, that very messy affair of Roman battle with our own eyes was interesting. I found a really fun fact about this uh, opening battle in the forest. This was shot in Surrey in Southeast England. And um, this woods they found was due to be cleared anywhere. It was due to be deforested. So Ridley Scott convinced them to, hey, can we can we film here and burn the forest down for you guys? For you, yeah, I yeah, heard about that story. That was really cool. That's a really cool little story I thought with that. And I just, I did thoroughly quite enjoy this opening battle scene. It was great to see Rome in all its blood and guts and glory, really, to see that sort of fighting taking place before our eyes. It is, and it's interesting to think, and I'm not going to even pretend to take mm. credit for this part, because it's just part of the research that I, that I did, but the presentation of effectively, we'll call them the Marcomanni or the, the Germanic tribe, mm. or Germania, if you will, for this case, is a portrayal that definitely shows the lasting staying power of the Roman perception and the Roman propaganda machine in terms of how they visualize these barbarian enemies that they were fighting. They look like they were straight. They, they could have been Neanderthals. Yeah, they could have been like from beyond the wall in Game of Thrones, couldn't they? Like It's just that classic oh, idea. Oh, yeah, it's, of, right, yeah. it's right there. Yeah. It's, it's that bad. Yeah, and... Uh, they weren't really like that, obviously, but that's just how he said the Roman propaganda, even to this day. When it's we am- right there, man. When we imagine Rome fighting Germanic tribes, we imagine them fighting like long haired, big beers, no shirts, that sort of thing. And, and the movie really does was- not disappoint. No, the movie doesn't disappoint. But I guess that's kind of the point of this movie. This movie is meant to, it, it, it's very much, if you were to ask people, films set in Ro- ancient Rome, yeah. this will be number one. Like, and it's very much supposed to lean into our perception of Rome, kind of like how in the same way, kind of about history, Jurassic Park, like there's that big argument, oh, they didn't actually have dinosaurs. <laughs> dinosaurs didn't actually have scales, they had feathers. No, but that's not the perception of them. Like our perception, like what we want to see is scaled big lizards. We don't want to see big chickens. When people want to see Rome on the big screen, this is what they want to see. And it's not historically accurate, but it's kind of, the public perception of Rome and Ridley Scott didn't want to stray away from that. No, and Ridley Scott is really interesting because earlier you mentioned the man in the high castle, mm. and I believe at least for the cup first couple of seasons of that, he was an executive producer. Of that now he has interesting. He, he has something of uh, a reputation for sticking his name in places <laughs> at times where he might not be that involved. But there was definitely one commonality that I noticed between those two. Mm. And I'm going to say it for the record. I loved the first two seasons of The Man of High Castle, especially the first. Mm. And the last two were hot garbage. I still need to watch it. I know about it, but I need to watch or read the audio or read the book. I need to get it on on that because I've heard... The, the, I've book heard... And the book and the TV series are two entirely... Oh, they deviate in some very significant ways. Interesting. Um, but not talking about Man of High Castle here, even though I could no. get down on that, get on that soapbox. Any case, so Ridley Scott is really well known for being a, a director, especially that it is very much a show don't tell. Yeah, and there's a lot of symbolism in that. Mm. And one of the very first things that we see early on in this battle is what looks like a dog, but could very easily pass as a wolf. 
Mm. Which is, you know, right off the bat, the, a clear symbolism. Yeah. You know, the wolf is Rome. The wolf Rome, is always, yeah. yeah. Yeah, the wolf is Rome, without a doubt. And you also learn a lot about Maximus as well. Hey, because, good old Maximus, who didn't exist. No, no. I mean, no. I think there were some kind of like general inspirations for him, but he's yeah. not a historic figure by any means. So two of the main ones that came to mind for me is Spartacus, obviously, you know, sort of slave rebellion, rebellion within Rome, that sort of thing. But another huge one, and forgive me if I'm mispronouncing this, Cincinnatus? Cincinnatus? And he, you know, I was going to bring up Cincinnatus. Yeah. yeah. It's literally the whole, I'm going to go back to my farm. Maximus, yep. when we first meet Maximus, he's this general in the war and they're saying, what are you going to do once it's over? He's like, I'm going to return to my farm, to my wife and son. And, and, and Cincinnatus was like one of the great mm. noble figures that are known from the Republican era of Rome. Mm. Just it, going, you know, leaving the farm behind, serving the state. And when they're done... I'm going to go back to tilling my fields. Yeah, and Maximus is clearly very much of the same ilk as that. Russell Crowe. There's also a little bit of Trajan in there as well. Yeah. Uh, Russell Trajan's also a Spaniard on top of that and a really, very successful general. Ooh, speaking of Spaniards, how, how convincing is Russell Crowe as being a Spaniard? Yeah, not at all. <laughs> it's so like, oh, the Hispanic one. Oh yeah, Russell Crowe, that big, that big bulky white dude over there. Like... Who's he trying to fool there? But each scenario, I just found that really funny. Every time Russell Crowe is referred to as a Spaniard, like what my perception of what someone from Spain potentially looks like isn't isn't Russell Crowe. But I just find that very definitely funny. not. No, and it's it's so something else. Sort of, I I realized during these early this opening scene of the film, um, strength and honor. This is a phrase used throughout the film, and I did some digging into it. I couldn't figure out if it was an actual Roman term. Some sources said it was, some sources said it wasn't. If you know anything more about that, Paul, that'd be great. It generally kind of fits. It's certainly yeah. not inappropriate. I mean, that's very much some of the very important core virtues, naturally, mm. of Maximus in particular. But the thing I like about Maximus in particular, mm. specifically in the show-don't-tell way and in the human way, mm. is, they, is that Ridley Scott goes a long way to wanting to show Maximus as being truly a a soldier's general, a general who fights leading mm. from the front. He's not this, you know, this theory-driven tactician that's sitting well behind the lines. He's there, he's fighting the enemy army, he's going through the same hardships, and he doesn't even really talk that much. He leads from pure example. And the strength of that example, and you can tell that, uh, certainly within the context of the film, that he is not just love for it, but their dedication to him is absolutely apparent. How could you not follow that guy, you know, through the flames mm. of hell? No, he is a good character. He's a very, he, he's a very much an entry point into this world, a very everyman, in, even in the way you mentioned he doesn't talk that much. I was quite, I said, this was my first viewing of it. And I know Russell Crowe won Best Actor in the Oscars that year for this performance. So I was expecting, I was expecting quite a hammy performance, quite a big, like, big epic speeches, that sort of thing. But it really isn't. It's quite a subdued no. role. And he did perform it well. Yeah. He was also apparently a big pain in the rear end on set. Yeah. I especially can as far as the script is concerned. Oh, really? Um, 
Yeah, yeah. Apparently, some he was something of a diva, but you know, it worked. I mean, there's no question mm. that he pulled it off incredibly well. And speaking of actors in this film, he is played by the original Dumbledore, Richard Harris. So this yep. must have been one of his final performances alongside Dumbledore. I believe it was. I and, believe so. Yeah, and he, he's he's good enough in it. But as we mentioned, I think off camera, he, he looks like he 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 literally looks like the I deal philosopher king mm -hmm. and we said this back in the episode when we were talking about commodus the ideal philosopher king that plato talked about in he, every way he was not that old how he was not that old however by any means no, no. he was in his like mid to late 50s he wasn't yeah. in his early 70s he died at 58 and richard harris's aurelius does not look 58 in this film but then no he, he's 70 and he looks it and then once we have uh, Aurelius we also have his son Commodus how, how do you feel about Joaquin Phoenix's performance in this film as Commodus because you were the one who gave us a good look at Commodus in that episode of 80 history so you know the figure pretty well so I'd like yeah. to hear your thoughts on this performance of him because it's become so it's, it's because sorry to die, it's become the definitive Commodus for so many people it's interesting because in a, in a few very specific ways. Well, one is this Commodus is dealing with some kind of succession struggle, which of course did not happen. Mm. There's no question that over, I think he was in power for about 12 years, as I recall, he really didn't have that much of an appetite for the actual business and administrative duties behind ruling. And he was really into the games. This, mm. he, he, you know, he fought in the games. Mm. In all, in all sorts of different ways. And even by hostile sources, like, like say, Cassius Dio, for example, he even gives him credit where due is there. The thing about this particular depiction of Commodus by Joaquin Phoenix is there are certain things that are much more scandalous to a modern audience than they might have been to the ancient audience. Mm. Like, for example, <laughs> I know it's making advances on his biological sister, especially to a modern audience. That is something that is considered out of bounds in the extreme to say nothing of. And conversely, to a modern audience, and while we are modern people, Paul, we're very well versed in the world of ancient Rome. We're and certainly when... not postmodern. No. <laughs> when, when Your um... mama's so old, she's postmodern. <laughs> when um, he started to make those advances, I didn't bat an eyelid. I don't think that was the reception Ridley Scott was intending on, but I was like, yeah, this is ancient Rome. Of course he's going to hit on his sister. Why, should I be shocked by this? Like, that was something, it, it was something that did not faze me at all. But as you said, we are very much ancient historians, at least to yeah, some so degree far. anyway. So far we are. I, was, I wasn't shocked to you that because we know that sort of thing happened in oh, ancient yeah. Rome. Absolutely. So the Romans would not have been quite as put off by it as, say, most of the people that were in the theater and still watch it today. <laughs> yeah. And speaking of that sister, so she's um, on site Lucilla. as well. Yes, she is on site as well. And she's talking yes. with uh, Aurelius and he says, oh, if only you had been born a man. And that's just a great encapsulation of Rome's opinion on women at the time, I suppose. Oh, yeah. You couldn't really get a female emperor. Even if they were born, yeah, even through birth, that sort of thing. But there's one, there's another thing I would add about Commodus and his portrayal here. Mm. Okay, yes. Is is that in reality, that portrayal of Commodus wasn't just Commodus 
you know, from the history of Augusta or mm. in the case of Cassius Dio's 80 volume history of Rome or whatever it was. It was Commodus, but it was also Caligula. Mm. It was Nero. It was Domitian. You know, kind of all of these misfits from the last, you know, almost 200 years of empire all kind of balled up into this one fictional portrayal of one Commodus. In many ways, this film is really like a greatest hits of Rome. Like all the tropes you'd expect. yes. But like I said, all the all the tropes you'd expect to see in a film about Rome, they're here in one way or another. You've got your wars, you've got your mad emperor, you've got your gladiators. Like I said, really, he just wanted to make like the definitive Roman film. And in in some ways, that's a success, I would say, at least from a cinematic point of view. Certainly. And it's interesting when we get past the battle scene yes. and you get into the whole beginning of the succession struggle. One is obviously... Marcus Aurelius could not fit that mold better. Mm. Both of his actual children are, in their own ways, kind of pieces of work. Yeah. And for some reason, though it is stated very clearly in the film that the first time that Maximus ever actually travels to and sees Rome is when he's a slave and is a gladiator, mm. I don't fully comprehend exactly how the relationship materialized so many years earlier with Lucilla. Yeah, yeah, that's a massive, that's a very good plot hole, actually. He's never been to Rome. Um, we can only presume Lucilla has spent an awful lot of time in Rome. So yeah, that is a very good point you've made there, boy. That's something I didn't notice. As you said, you watched this quite a few times before researching. And yeah. it's only once, it's only once you start to watch film that many times, you start to notice those strange plot holes. No, that's yeah. a really good point. <laughs> and so naturally, you, know, you get to the point where Commodus finds out what's happening. He hmm. kills his dad. And then he takes what is, what in some respects, actually is a very logical role, a very logical decision at that place in time, mm. which is to get rid of the guy that could derail your whole effort, you yeah. know, w- w- within the confines of the plot. Mm. We get to a point where he tries to execute him, he fails. And then he has to travel from basically modern day Vienna mm. to somewhere on the Iberian Peninsula on mm. horseback. It's a big old journey. <laughs> it is an incredibly long journey. You have to get through the Alps, then you have to get through effectively southern France, then you have to get through the Pyrenees, and then wherever it is you're going on the Iberian Peninsula. Yeah. And the thing that surprises me is not even so much that he's making the trip or the realities of it, but that Commodus somehow managed to get word out ahead of him to execute his family. Yeah, yeah, some strange loopholes there, that sort of thing. Like, how? Because you're not supposed to think about it. No, and that, like, everyone's going at the same speed at that sort of time in history. Like, it's either horse or walk, basically. So, like, hard to, hard, hard to get the head start, really. This is undeniably true, mm. without a doubt. So, so what do you yeah. think of Ridley Scott as a director? Because I think he's really hit and miss. Um, He's very hit or miss. I mean, you have something like this or you have something like Blade Runner and mm. they're classics. Blade Mm. Runner is obviously a much better movie. The original one, that is. Mm. A much better movie than Gladiator, especially because it is just outright fiction, Mm. science fiction. It's the future for all intents and purposes. I do find it interesting, though, based on when that movie was made. That there was uh, always this idea how the uh, Japanese economic bubble wouldn't somehow burst at some yeah. point in time. 
Yeah. So it was very much of the 80s, as it were. I always found that funny the first time I saw it. But, you know, he's very good with the visuals. Mm. He's very good with the visuals. He definitely, in many ways, is a master of show, don't tell, mm. which to me is the most powerful form of visual storytelling. If you have to tell the audience and not show them, you're not doing your job right. Exactly. Like if I had to be told things, I'd read a book, that sort of thing. That show me, you use the screen. Oh, that's interesting to hear. I think. I, my... mean, th- I mean, like, mm. here's a really good example of the mm. kind of thing I'm talking about. You've seen the very first Star Wars movie, A New Hope, Episode 4. I've, I, I uh, have seen Star Wars, yes. <laughs> and other than that opening title crawl, hmm. for about the first minute of the movie, everything you know, rather everything you need to know, is depicted in visuals alone. Hmm. I love that kind of storytelling in films. And so for this, he does, you know, he gets a lot of symbolism in there. There's a lot of really um, intense images. And the whole thing about walking along that field of grain from Mm. the very beginning is telling you that this man, Maximus, is not long for this world. He has one last mission as a soldier to fulfill before he can finally find peace. Mm. And that was a great sort of analogy of this film, analysis of the film right there. Yeah, that that walking amongst the grain, that's a reoccurring theme and image even we get throughout the film and it's to represent the afterlife. Is it Elysium, I believe, is the term I'm looking for? Is that the Roman yeah, he's right. Yeah, he even mentions it he when mentioned, he gives that yeah. little brief pep talk. Yeah. Which is not nearly as long as you think it would be. No, but that kind of once again leads into how this is quite a subtle role. I, I went into this expecting to be a big epic speech. It was very sort of subtle little things like that. Um, Mm -hmm. And eventually, so when he does arrive at his home, he does find his wife and son crucified and burned. And then from there, he ends up back in slavery. Is it in somewhere? It's in North Africa he ends up. They say it's Morocco. Morocco, yeah. And it was filmed, a lot of this film. So I don't think any of this film was filmed in Rome itself. I believe it's three main filming locations were Morocco, the UK, as I mentioned, and of course, Malta, which is a place near and dear to my heart, that tiny little island being yes, with Maltese heritage. That was the three main filming locations for this film. I think Morocco took up a big chunk of that. So the, the, the scenes, are the very few of them, that is, mm. that are supposed to take place in Spain or Spania, mm. those are all filmed in Tuscany. Oh, okay then. Interesting. Those are filmed in Tuscany. Um, so yeah, basically they... They, he finds them ex, you know, crucified, mm. which is also something that for a modern audience would mean a lot. Yeah, yeah. Just as this truly brutal form of execution. And on top of that, and this is probably where the other inaccuracy comes in here, is that because Maximus, being a general, of course, he has Roman citizenship. Mm. And, cruci- and that would mean that his wife and his son would ultimately be kind of protected in the same mm. way. And even if you wanted to bump somebody off, for the most part, as I've always understood it, crucifixion was reserved for the capital punishment of anybody except Roman citizens. You could be executed if you're a Roman citizen. Mm. They did that all the time, but they wouldn't crucify you. I wonder... So 180 AD we're in or so. It'd be interesting to know where Christianity was at this point, because this is 180 or just just a shy of 180 years since Jesus 
was on the planet. Um, of course, to us today, crucifixion and the cross is a deeply religious symbol. But of course, initially, it was just a form of execution. So I wonder if it had that religious imagery surrounding it. Yeah, and even to us, the audience, you know, we've already talked about an afterlife Elysium and seeing sort of crucifixion. It's very strong religious uh, oh, yeah. imagery being shown to us in this film. And it has got that kind of sort of holy undertone to it. We see that sort of that, that constant image of a Maximus sort of being lifted off the ground, being transported like that, which we're going to see yeah. in a moment as he's being transported into slavery. But um, it's yeah, very... that's, also, that's, the other, that's the other distance issue here. Yeah. It's like, okay, so you picked him up somewhere in Spain. Yeah. You got him across the Straits of Gibraltar, and now he's being sold off in Morocco. Yeah, or Numidia, as the Morocco was called at the time. I believe you're right. Yeah, yes. and something this film is actually really quite good at accurate with is name. So um, Rome, I, I always find it interesting how similar and different the names Rome used for Europe are as the names we use. Uh, Europe and North Africa as well, of course, because... A lot of them are strikingly accurate. Like you have Germania, which we still use Germany, Britannia. And they would have pr- they would have pronounced it Germania. Germania, apologies. Yeah. Um, yeah. Britannia, there's still some very similar names. However, there's a lot of names that don't really exist on our maps anymore. And Numidia is no. a great example of that. That sort of area of North Africa. Uh, what else is there? Gaul as well as a prime example. We don't use Gaul for France anymore. Numidia Not is usually, great, unless no. you're talking about Charles de Gaulle. Exactly, unless you're talking about Charles de Gaulle, exactly. I, I love how Andrew Roberts put it. That, that sounds more like a nom de guerre than a baptismal reality. <laughs> yeah, that's a very good way to put it. But, um, <laughs> but we're not going down the Charles de Gaulle no, right no, 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 no. <laughs> but um, it's just cool to see them referring to it as Numidia, that sort of thing. One of the things this film does correctly, which I'm very happy about, of course, is the names. Names are your business. Mm. And it, it, it it's like around here, we kind of get introduced to the world of the gladiator. Um, Russell Crowe's Maximus, he's in a pretty sort of beat up way. And now we see he's got those horrible wounds, that sort of thing. And he's sort of into slavery. And just there's a great little cameo here from uh, a co- comedian. He's the slave owner who ends up with Maximus. A comedian talking about called... Proximo? Is, it Pox... Is that Oliver Reed's character? Yeah, and I believe this was also oh. Oliver Reed's last role. He died during the filming of this film. So, yeah. you know, the guy, Proximo, uh, buys Maximus from is um comedian Omid Jalili, who's a sort of stand-up comedian here in the UK. He's in the Mummy film as well, the first Mummy film. So the early two thousands, yeah, the, clearly the late nineties, early two thousands was his heyday because he hasn't really yeah, done much. Very the, good to him. He hasn't done much in the world of film since then. He's he's remained a yeah. popular British comedian, but just fun little cameo seen him here as well. But no, Poxima, as you mentioned, that's Oliver Reed's final role. He died. You know about the famous CGI recreation of him in this film? Was it during his death sequence? When, it, when, when eventually Maximus says to him, are you, are you starting to turn into a good man? Around, it's when he's given him the keys. It's when he's given Maximus yeah, yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that scene. And it's very good for 2000, but it's, it, it, it's very good for 2000, I'll say. <laughs> And that's saying a lot, yeah. Because we still haven't quite messed, even with deep fakes. You know, we still haven't no. quite gotten it. No, it's still... I mean, you you look at the recreation of Luke Skywalker in the the finale of mm. season two of the Mandalorian, and there was a lot of criticism of that, despite the fact everybody was excited as hell. There's even... But no, I was not familiar with that with uh, with Oliver Reed. Oh no, there's even the strange Grand Moff Tarkin, isn't there? In um, 
Rogue One. Oh yeah, Rogue that, One. Yeah, that that one is uncanny valley territory. Yeah, that's a strange. And this was no one. uncanny valley no, territory. No, something worth mentioning. There, yes, yeah, so two famous British people there, Oliver Reed and Omid Jalili, at the same time. But this this is quite an accurate portrayal of the life of a gladiator. They were slaves forced to fight. They weren't these noble warriors. Um. You know, you, when you think like fighters of Rome, maybe think like it might be easy to get something like a centurion and a gladiator, someone mixed up. But gladiators weren't noble men, or they weren't like knights of shining armor. They were rough slaves, or forced to do these horrible things. And they didn't fight for war; they just fought for their own amusement. They were very much the yeah, modern not, wrestler. Not, not, not until Marcus Aurelius began to realize, hey, these guys might be really helpful in my army. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. I guess not until then. Yeah. He started pulling in gladiators during his time, which. Oh as I understand it based on the research that I have done, just made it more expensive to put on quality games. Mm. Yeah, because you're losing all your gladiators to the actual wars. Yeah, and, and when you talk, you're talking about the sequence here, right, with mm. when, he, when he finally is just kind of like floating and he's in North Africa. That's, yeah. that's, of course, when he makes his first ally and friend. Yes. In, 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 the, in the person of Juba. Juba, that's the name. That's, I can never, the actor Digimon Hudson, I believe he's called. You might be right. I'm not 100%. He's a really good I, actor. I've definitely seen him before. He is. He's one of the main characters in Blood Diamond. I have not watched Blood oh, Diamond. Oh, Blood Diamond. That's another film we could maybe watch at some point. That's kind of <sighs> historical. But um, And he's also in the Guardian of the Galaxy films. He's um in the first one anyway, if you're a big Marvel nerd like myself. But um, he's a really great actor. He's great in this as well. Yeah, he is. In many ways, he represents the the best qualities of mm. Maximus, the love of home, the love mm. of family, a, a truly honorable and decent person, despite what he's going to be asked to do. Yeah. And they make a great team together when they finally, when uh, Maximus, they finally entered the first gladiatorial combat and like they're tied together. And that was really interesting. One had a sword, one had a shield. And I found yeah, that to be... And they were hand in glove. Mm, and I really enjoy the action of this film. I think it's got some really yeah. good visceral... I mean, I'm a big... I said, Oh, yeah. I'm a oh, big boy, Marvel yeah. nerd. And as much as I love the Marvel films, the action of them is so rubbery. It's just punches and like... To see like swords proper going in and like... It, it was just great to see some real rough action like that it was refreshing people are getting jacked up let's Pe put yeah. it that way the, the, there's heads coming off at one point there's limbs yeah there's all kinds of interesting stuff if you're into if you're into stuff like that this is your film and it's also something where we begin learning more about maximus as mm. well which is to say and he says this as much but after having it been shown very clearly he only kills when he has to yeah and unfortunately, he, in gladiatorial yeah. combat, you kind of push into that corner to kill. Yes, but he finds ways out mm. of it at times. One of which, obviously, later in the film is by winning over the crowd. Mm. Naturally, that's, that's part of it. But it shows a, a certain honor to his character, a very specific decency. Mm. That killing may be what he needs to do, but he will never do it any further than he deems it necessary mm. in order to fulfill his mission in the long run. And of course, he, he's a gladiator now. He's a slave. And Rome has a very strange relationship with gladiators, mm. which is to say that they were the rock stars of their times. You know, they, they were the NFL players. They were the, the star Major League Baseball players, NBA players, or Premier League soccer. 
All pro but wrestlers, I feel, time. is quite apt, apt comparison. Yes, but I also consider that a combination of incredible athleticism <laughs> yeah. and coordination with the ability to act. Yeah, yeah. We'll talk about that sometime. One on day. Area. At some <laughs> point, we will. But they have a strange relationship because they become the rock stars of their time. They're the huge celebrities, but at the same time, they're still slaves. Yeah. They're it, not in control of their own destiny. It is really interesting. I think perhaps a more apt comparison might even be uh, racing horses or even greyhounds. Oh, that's dark. Like, And that's probably accurate, too. It probably is. Like, these horses, you know, there's some incredibly... Horses especially. Yeah, there's some incredibly the celebrated horses. Sure. Yeah, there's some, like... But these horses aren't... I, I, they might enjoy racing, I'm not sure. But I think that's a more apt comparison. Like, they're famous and beloved, but what have they got to show for it? And the answer is not a hell of a mm. lot. Even though as gladiators succeed, you know, their conditions, I imagine, do improve some. But it's interesting because we also learn the introduction of Proxima. Mm. So Oliver Reed's character is, uh, is, a real mix, is a real misdirection because you think that he's just become this super callous, hard individual mm. that just looks at this as transactions yeah, and, and making a buck, which it is. But you find out not too long afterwards that there's another side of the man, a man of uh, another side of the man that based upon his introduction and that incredible little monologue he gives you, you know, mm. well, your mother may have been there when she, you know, basically gave birth to you screaming into this world. I'm going yes. to be here when you meet your end. Yeah, he's good in there. He's very Oliver. So Oliver Reed lived a very wild lifestyle. Um, and he's terrific in this film. He's, he's, he's absolutely great. I think everyone was quite impressed by the kind of acting he brought out for this one. Oh, yeah. I mean, talk about putting on a final performance mm. here. But you find out when he gets into this conversation with Maximus after this first bout that there's more going on there with him. Yeah, he, uh, he sort of reveals that he was a former gladiator himself. And to reach that age while being a gladiator is no small feat. So he's clearly someone who's worth listening to, I suppose. And it ultimately leads to the two of them, and of course, many others, his other gladiators, going to Rome. And this is where we and Maximus first see Rome for the first time. And Paul, yeah. what are your thoughts on this depiction of the actual city of Rome? From more informed sources, as I understand it, if you begin really looking into the details of it, apparently there are some definite inaccuracies. <laughs> Just a few. <laughs> Yeah, I, th I remember one source telling me, not telling me, but hearing, reading, that if you pinpoint it, apparently you can see some, like, church spires. <laughs> so naturally, they weren't going for the whole nine yards here. No, and even things like the statues. So we know that the statues were painted in ancient Rome. We still have some Oh, yeah, they were totally colorful. Yeah, yeah, it was wouldn't really much. Like, we have this idea, like I said... The, Kind of like the whole how dinosaurs in Jurassic Park have scales because that's what the audience think they look like. The public audience presume Rome was beige and sandy. So that's kind of what we give them, even though that's not historically accurate. Like Rome would have been no, a much more No, even though I think place. I like it better the way it looks now, personally. But yes, yeah. that could just be preference. And there's another thing, you know, speaking about writing a script and portraying it for the benefit of a modern audience, mm. you'll notice that all the characters, especially when they get to Rome, they keep referring to the Colosseum as the Colosseum. Yes, that's something I noticed as well. Like, they probably wouldn't have called it the Colosseum. It was called something like 
it was the named after the, yeah the amphitheater it had or like, the colossus it was named after who i can't remember who was emperor at the time it was like known as so-and-so's Colosseum. i did a whole like a segment yeah, no, about the flavian it. amphitheater flavian that's the one yes. yeah yeah flavian because because it was the flavian dynasty yes yeah that that came about and and was important to that. that and of course there is that what was originally commissioned and was a colossus statue of nero which mm-hmm. had been converted so usually they'd either call it the amphitheater, the Flavian amphitheater, or the Colossus. Mm. And we see its, it's feet, kind of, don't we, quite often in this film. Then Aren't they paddling around by the Colossus's feet? They are indeed. That, I think yeah. that actually may be the only portion that actually remains today. Yeah. I should remember I've correct? been there. <laughs> yeah. I'll say yes, but I should remember because I have been there. It, you know, the greatest example of this in terms of how it's been referred to, mm. the Colosseum, the way I think of it is today, if I were going to a Yankee game at Yankee mm. Stadium, yeah, you'd say, yeah, I'm going to Yankee Stadium, but it's more likely, especially if you're talking to another baseball fan from the area, mm. we just call it the stadium. Yeah, yeah. It's just the stadium. Just, yeah, that, that that's the only stadium. Yeah, and that, that makes sense. But um, I was even impressed that they actually completely restructured it, because obviously the Coliseum famously these days is a huge chunk missing from the side of it. And oh, yeah. the, the portrayal of Rome this film was heading for. Part of me was like, are they even going to remember to put that back in? But no, they did. We see we see what Ridley Scott presumed the Colosseum would have looked like in its full glory. And it's interesting because apparently they spent many millions of dollars mm. in recreating a whole slice of the Colosseum <laughs> for the benefit of shooting this movie. Wow. And they filled the rest of it in with cgi they had some you know physical human extras in there Mm. they had some cgi crowd members and apparently and interestingly enough though not at all surprising they also used some uh cardboard cutout for for far away shot i think they probably still do that to this day on things like it's a pretty yeah it's it's a pretty regular thing it's an easy little bit of hollywood magic if you want to call it that cardboard cutout serve very well when you've got them mixed up with other people in far away shots you can't really beat them. No, you can't. And like, I'm a big fan of practical effects. Mm. You know, I, yeah, same. I, I've kind of gotten overwhelmed by all the ones and zeros at times when it comes to the CGI that's being employed today. Amazing as it is, but the human eye still has an incredible ability to identify what I can only define as fakeness. Mm. If I were to call it anything, right? But they did a really fantastic job here. And also something else that's really interesting to point out is they even put the canopy mm. that went around the top, which was debated about for a long time in terms of did they actually use it? What was it specifically used for? Was it definitely for cooling? Mm. Those are interesting questions to ask. But what's interesting here is when we, when we finally get to the point where they're in Rome and you're, you're seeing a lot of these interesting dealings. Now, let's talk a little bit more about Commodus and his relationship with the Senate as yeah. it's portrayed there. Mm. And it is very clear. I'm sure we mentioned it when we were talking about Commodus in that episode from back in January, February 2021. So earlier this yeah. year, relative to the time of recording this episode, is that it wasn't very good. No. And a lot of the sources are naturally not big homers for Commodus. The History Augusta, to use a ter- certain term to a certain extent, I mean, it has value, but to some extent, it's a tabloid. Mm. 
you know, <laughs> yeah, that's a great way to explain news. it as a tabloid. Yeah, fake it's, news. It's and very you, trashy. It's very yeah. Yeah. You also have another history by a historian writer called Herodian, and of course you have one Cassius Dio, who, when the time of Commodus comes, and he's writing his eighty-something volume history that's mm. a you know, cradle the grave of Rome for when he was alive and, and doing it. When you start getting into the areas of the rule of Marcus Aurelius and then Commodus, of course, Cassius Dio, and he makes this very clear, is then writing that history from firsthand experience, mm. which is important to note as well. And so they did not have a great relationship. And you can see that they don't, not because they're necessarily outwardly hostile, but th they're more jeering him. Mm. They're they're not respectful. They do not believe that he is up to the job that he has been bestowed with. And to some extent, you can understand why, because if you're an emperor, he becomes obviously very, very consumed mm. by the whole Maximus deal, despite the fact that for all intents and purposes, he should be holding all the cards. Yeah, but he isn't quite, and he doesn't know it's Maximus to begin with, does he? He watches Maximus battle for the first time in the Colosseum. And he doesn't realize, of course, that yeah. it's him until he goes down there and chooses to meet him. Yeah. And so you're looking also at a lot of the political intrigue. There was a, a Senator Gracchus, I believe. Yes. In fact, I think it might have been a couple of them. It's Derek Jacoby, Derek Jacoby's character in this film. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, he, he's the one that wanted to to, you know, basically allow the coup against Commodus to go forward. And there's that great scene between him and some others, and it's very Game of Thrones. It's almost like they're all sort of scheming behind the Emperor's back, and that just, that once again reminded me a lot of Game of Thrones sort of things going on there. And... I haven't seen a ton of Game of Thrones. Oh, you but know it, it, No, my mm. wife has. She's been mm. really into it. I, I figure I'll go and do it at some point, because it's just mm. so culturally relevant. But mm. from what I have seen of Game of Thrones... Even those scenes in particular were mm. shot in a very similar way. There is, it's, it, they are very short and very much a similar way. I wouldn't be surprised if this film was uh, did help set the tone for how Game of Thrones would be shot and produced. Um, just going back a little bit, just where we get first get introduced to Rome and the Colosseum, there are some interesting quotes I picked up on. So I've forgotten his name again, uh, Maximus's friend. Uh, he says, um, I didn't know men could build such things. And I found this to be really interesting, as we uh, believe he is from sort of sub-Saharan Africa, North, North Africa. I kind of assume that he was probably somewhere from Northwest Africa, yeah. maybe like what we consider today, perhaps like Gold Coast or Ivory Coast, yeah. maybe. But and they don't spell that out. No, and I just think this thing was interesting. So I didn't know men could build such things, because as we know, human development varied greatly across the world from Europe compared to Africa, compared to what's happening in Asia, compared to what was happening in the Americas at the time. And it just showed that that sort of different reflection of different cultures, he wouldn't have ever seen a building like that because from where he came from, that wasn't happening yet. And it just showed, I guess, some, some respect to the history. Yeah, I mean, it certainly makes sense. And mm. the Colosseum, what we call the Colosseum today, is still a wonder. Oh, gosh, yeah. Which, of course, speaks to just the wonder that is expressed in that statement mm. and in that scene. Mm. So, And 
one other thing I found of interest, I can't remember who said it, but someone mentions a, mentions a plague in the Greek quarter of, of Rome. Rome You're talking about been... Antonine Plague, undoubtedly. Yes, yeah. And this really reminded me of, do you remember when we talked about Juvenal, the satirist? Of course. And he, he had that, his, his most famous uh, work was about leaving Rome because it was gross and full of Greek people. It just yeah, reminded yeah, me yeah. of that, like, that sort of real commoner perspective of Rome that we don't really get too often in the history books because history is written by stuffy old men more or less talking about other stuffy old men we don't really get a look at the what was going on with plebeian life in Rome it, it's, it it's harder to get the, the bottom up perspective mm. in, in ancient history it's not impossible no but it's it's certainly difficult and not nearly as much attention is often paid to it to be sure mm. And so, yeah, there was indeed a Greek quarter in ancient Rome, mm. which, which is interesting to say the least. And it also speaks to the fact that, you know, we look at Rome today as this very monolithic thing. Mm. But, of course, it was a, a multi-ethnic empire. And it, a place like Rome, though obviously with strong Greek and Latin influence, is still very cosmopolitan. It yeah. draws people from everywhere. Yeah, it does. It was it was a city. It, it was like a, in the same way London or New York are cities. People go there to do something from all across the world, all across the empire. At this time, it would have had Greek people. It would have had like people from uh, sort of North Africa, I suppose. And that was something definitely I thought was very interesting. And it's easy to poke fun at the accent. See, it, you get every kind of accent in this film, minus, I guess, an actual Italian accent. And it's easy to poke fun of that. But I think it's worth mentioning. Very. Because, because that is somewhat reminiscent to what Roma would have been like at that time. There would have been different voices, different languages, different ethnicities all throughout the city. It wasn't just Roman-speaking Latin in there. You, it would have been a huge mix. Yeah, basically, if you if your empire stretches mm. from Newcastle to effectively Baghdad, mm. that's a lot of different people inside yeah. your borders. Yeah. And Rome, you know, there was definitely money to be made there. Mm. Without a doubt, in addition to other places, of course. But definitely money to be made there. And, of course, it's going to attract people from all over. It's the eternal city. Yeah. It, it, it has not fallen out in the way that it has in terms of where we currently are in the proper show. No, 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 definitely not. No, by, by now in our actual AD history, Rome's very out of fashion. And it's quite shocking. It's hard to realize that at times. But no, Rome's out. But sure. as we sort of carry on through the film, so we get to... Commodus realizing Maximus is still alive, and and what a scene that mm, is! It's a really when good he scene. he turns his back on him, then comes back around, takes off the helmet. Mm. You know, I am Maximus. You know, son of a you know, excuse me, father of a slain son, mm. husband to a murdered wife, and the true and dear friend of the true emperor of Rome, Marcus Aurelius. And I shall have my vengeance in this life or the next, which is a line that actually Russell Crowe hated. <laughs> he is hated a pretty good it. line? It, I thought it worked really well within the context of the film and the emotional current of it all. And so, but apparently he hated it. And the only reason it stayed in 
is because he couldn't think of a better line. <laughs> it's amazing Russell Crowe had such say in the script. Like, just you're an he was actor. one of the biggest the actors on earth at the time. I guess so. Yeah, he's still a pretty big actor to this day. But um, very interesting when you like you said that there are quite a few stories about Russell Crowe out there. He seems yeah. a very interesting figure. <laughs> I'll say that. To say to say the least, you know, one thing that I've always kind of operated on, this mm. is just a little bit of a tangent, <laughs> is that for the most part, whether it be celebrities in entertainment or professional athletes that I've admired, I've never had any personal desire to meet them. No. Because I only want to know them in that way. Yeah. It would be like, if I had, you know, if I had to go and, and meet Derek Jeter, yeah, of course I would do it. But I, I don't want to because I just want to know him the way I want to know him. I don't want to know them as as the flawed human beings they are. Right. I want to know them through their work. Yeah, no, definitely. That's a very good win. Like Russell Crowe, let's just know through his work. Some, some pretty good acting chops on him, we'll say. But um, He's not missing anything as far as I know. No, no. But as the film progresses, we see sort of more. It just kind of goes. We see more gladiatorial combat in the Colosseum, more yeah. sort of scheming. And there's that dude with the amazing eyebrows. And we just need to mention... And they're real. Are they real? Bloody hell. They're apparently they're real. Apparently Wowzers. they're real. You did some research. This is the eyebrows. Yeah, I, I was surprised how I came across that one. <laughs> Something that's interesting about Maximus at this mm. point, especially after he gets back to Rome, it mm. starts in North Africa. Yeah. But after that initial confrontation with Commodus on the Colosseum floor mm. is that you begin seeing him being given his life back piece by piece yeah like he he quickly becomes uh, beloved by the crowd in the same way he was beloved by his troops like he he's a very likable character maximus and no matter if it is his soldiers or just spectators or or the gladiators around oh, him. Yeah, of course, they have a gladiator They have themselves. such deference and respect towards mm. him. Well, in, in a later battle, he like organized them. He goes back into military mode. It was, it was in the first battle. It's in the first battle, my apologies. So I was thinking like, yeah, the first Colosseum battle even, yeah. Yeah, when apparently they're trying to reenact the Battle of Carthage. Yes, I really... Which apparently wasn't even the battle that, that actually was supposed to be. So the, the Punic War, the Second Punic War, is something I did study yeah. even before AD history. It's, it, it, it's a best of beast. See, that's for sure, Paul. Um, yeah. Carthage, yeah, the Second Punic War is really interesting because Rome came so close to losing it all, and we don't exactly know why. But when Hannibal got to Rome, we don't know why he just never was able to fully conquer Rome itself. But he was at Rome's doorstop, and he just turned around for some unknown reason. So, um, you know, when it comes to Hannibal, there's a reason why people are still studying the Battle of Cannae, despite mm. the fact that apparently they haven't been able to pinpoint the exact location of that battle. No. It's, but whatever the case yeah. is, of course, under under Maximus's direction and leadership through mm. example and engendering that loyalty from the gladiators around him, they turn the tables on the whole thing for something that was supposed to be an outright slaughter yeah. to an unexpected victory. And not just an unexpected one where they eke it out either. No. All right. They curb stop them. And something I found interesting about this was the female archers. I thought that was quite cool. I don't know if that was just a, a directive choice or if that was like historically accurate. But in this um in this reenactment. That I don't know, but no, I'm no, guessing no. it's probably artistic in nature yeah. if I were to guess. But um, I thought that was interesting. And Sure. It's here we get perhaps one of the most famous things, and this is another great example of 
what moviegoers expect of Rome compared to the historically accurate Rome. And this is the classic thumbs up, thumbs down from the emperor. So yeah, yeah, this is a big one. Thumbs up meant die in reality, didn't it? If it did even happen or, at all. Or, or, or just straight out, mm. which means like stick the sword in them kind of mm. thing. And here, here, thumbs up means they get to live as we see Commodus give the thumbs up. And, and that's then, entirely for the benefit of the modern audience. Yeah. And it's or just, the one... Or if they approve, I like they like, kind of like stick like the thumb under one of the forefingers, something mm. like that. I the point is the way it was done in the movie was very much so the modern audience could understand what was happening. Mm. The, the historical accuracy was one of those things that was actually would have been an impediment to the uh, modern audience understanding. Yeah. And we also, if if memory serves, people the, the the people seem to quite like Commodus during all of this and. Was he popular with the plebs at the time? Do you know? That's a difficult... I'm not 100% sure. Mm. I mean, over time, I would imagine his popularity probably began to wane a little bit mm. because Rome was definitely getting into some choppy waters. But, you know, in terms of spectacle, mm. you know, there's a reason why, in this case, the progenitor of the Flavian dynasty was all about Right in circuses. Yep. And, and this Max, excuse me, this Commodus certainly understands that part. Commodus was perhaps the most bread and circuses emperor we'd had to date at this point. And With the exception maybe of Vespasian, you know? Yeah. Maybe, yeah. But this film, as you said, Ridley Scott likes this show, Don't Tell. He literally shows us Rome throwing bread to the people. There's literally a scene where just for a battle huge chunks of bread are being thrown into the crowd like yeah it, it, it's fascinating and it really is some it's literally actual bread and circuses it, it hammers home that yeah. point quite significantly but that's how you keep, keep the people happy keep them fed keep them entertained you'll they'll, they'll stay on your side more or less and you have to imagine you know this is true of any of any sport any fans of any particular team mm. They often refer to the crowd in this, or even Rome in general in terms of its people, as the mob. Mm. And it's amazing how it's portrayed here, which is that you will succeed, you will live, so long as the mob is on your side. Mm. And this obviously is something that is, becomes very deeply troubling to Commodus, where it's becoming, at least in his eyes, fairly clear that the crowd seems to love Maximus, mm. adore Maximus, more than they care in the least about him. Mm. And in fact, his sister Lucille at one point in the movie, I forget who she was saying it to, I think it was to Maximus, you know, he, she was talking about his, his bitterness. His bitterness coming from the fact that, Matt, you know, Marcus Aurelius loved this fictional Maximus more than he loved his own son. His daughter, Lucilla, once was in love with him. And now, of course, though, I don't necessarily know that she mentions this outright in this little portion of it, but now the crowd seems to as well. And yeah. it's just one very intense emotional dagger after the other to Commodus, who really comes off, and Joaquin Phoenix is brilliant at doing this. Yeah. There's no one who does it better, of uh, portraying that the character whose mental and cognitive state is fraying very clearly before actually outright losing it. There's not many times when you see, in this case, Joaquin Phoenix as Commodus loses top. And this is something that's actually really interesting. And it's mm. a very good point of acting and directing. 
There's something that Laurence Olivier used to say about mm. acting, which is never show the audience your top. Because once you do, you no longer have anywhere else to go. You <laughs> always want that in your back pocket. You always want that available to you. So that in the one time that for whatever reason it is necessary to deviate and to show them your top, they will be utterly floored by it. This is Joaquin Phoenix's tops, you reckon? <laughs> yes, yes, because he's, he's fraying. Mm. And they keep him contained so that any time that there is a serious outburst, it hits a lot harder. And I must admit, I haven't seen this film, but from your description, from what I've heard about this other film, you can understand why Joker, why he was chosen to play the Joker. Yes, in, yes, 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 absolutely. That, I haven't seen it myself. I've heard, I've heard good things. And it sounds very reminiscent from what I've heard. But um, yeah, he's a very good actor. I need to watch um, the man in not the man in black walk the line again because he's great in that as well. He's he a very, plays such a good Johnny yeah. Cash, and I love Johnny Cash. Mm. Funny aside, because we can do this yeah. here. And <laughs> yeah. Just one just funny little aside, very quickly. So I saw Walk the Line in theaters, mm. and I saw it with a friend of mine who clearly she was not, <laughs> she didn't know anything about Johnny Cash. Mm. And in that particular situation, maybe 20 minutes in, she's like, can we leave? <laughs> and I just look over to her and I whisper, enjoy the walk home. Yeah. <laughs> enjoy she... the walk home. <laughs> no. No, she stayed stuck that, that was That was just my way of saying, there ain't no way in hell yeah, that you're leaving. <laughs> nope. And I'm the one with the keys in the car. But Joaquin Phoenix is a great, great, great actor. Um, really good at stuff. Her, he's really great in Her as well. Another great film where it's like mental stability is on the line. But let's get back to uh, the yeah, thing absolutely. at hand here. And we yeah, see yeah, yeah, yeah. more of what the Coliseum has to offer. Because the Coliseum... It really is almost a character unto itself in this movie. A lot of it takes place That's within a really the Coliseum. Good point, yeah. yeah. And we see things like it's trapdoors. If you look at the Coliseum to this day, the actual floor is gone, but you can kind of see those sort of underparts of it where the trapdoors were. And we also see tigers. And did Rome yeah. have tigers? They had all sorts of exotic animals that they would come in. So I'm just thinking from where tigers are from, tigers are very much of the subcontinent. Like, that that's certainly true today. They used to be much more widely oh, spread okay, out yeah. okay, prior yeah. to hunting and and uh, mm -hmm. and of course, you know, human development. So I, here's yeah, something interesting. I didn't have tigers I mean, hit their areas, but yeah, yeah. So in the case of Commodus, we actually talked about this in that mm. episode, basically, yeah, about Commodus and and his his real ability. And when he chose to be a gladiator, one mm. of the big things that he would do in the arena was kill exotic animals. In fact, in that episode, Commodus on the Couch, mm. back from uh, about the middle of our second season, which was only about 10 months ago, <laughs> but is that he actually, I actually gave a list of all of the various exotic animals that he brought in. Like even, I think it was during even one set of games <laughs> that he ended up slaughtering. And the list is truly ridiculous, to say the least. So in this case, is it plausible? Sure. I would have to say so based on just the fact that they would bring them in from all over the place and they would pay a, you know, a pretty coin to make that possible. So mm -hmm. he would go and he would kill them in addition to actual gladiatorial combat. 
where he usually, if I understand my research correctly, in the case of gladiators, they had certain roles, like not apparently not just any gladiator can fight just any gladiator. Mm. So apparently the role, and this Heal is according, face. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is according to uh, Rihanna Evans from Latrobe University. If mm. you've, if you haven't heard the podcast Emperors of Rome, believe me, it is a treat waiting to happen. It's, it's so enjoyable. Mm. And it's one of the sources that I use to, to look into this because I just know how good they are at what they do. So I want to give credit where credit is due here. So apparently there's a few types. There was one that is considered the pursuer, mm -hmm. which is usually apparently the role in terms of actual gladiatorial combat against other gladiators that Commodus preferred to have. Mm -hmm. And then you had another one that was called like a net man. So I think there are others, but those are the two that I remember mentioning. So yeah, he, he killed exotic animals and he usually played the rule, uh, excuse me, the role of the pursuer gladiator as well, mm -hmm. which I think is interesting. Yeah. And when they were shooting this particular scene, obviously these are trained tigers. You know, this yeah. is what they do for better or worse, however one might feel about yeah. that. They're trained, but they were assiduous in making sure that the tigers got no closer than 15 feet to Russell Crowe. <laughs> and apparently there was a, a vet on site right there just on the actual set that was mm. prepared with tranquilizer darts should go th should things go awry so that's interesting because i remember watching this i remember one of the tigers looking particularly green screened at one point i wonder if that's because he wasn't allowed that close to russell crowe how interesting i thought you were gonna say they have a vet on site in case russell crowe starts acting up they've got a tranquilizer to knock russell crowe out in case he gets oh, too well, annoying yeah <laughs> e e either either him or or walking phoenix and the other thing that's really interesting to note here is actually mm. Russell Crowe himself in doing these scenes. Apparently, he had actually had some uh, really bad injuries oh, due to this. Yeah, that he, makes sense. he re aggravated an old Achilles injury. He had a couple of issues with tendons in his biceps. Apparently, they apparently chipped his hip. He definitely took a, a very harsh physical toll mm. in order to portray this role and specifically the most physically demanding duties that it would require. And I, I'm sure they did some stunt double work because you got to protect your big people, mm. but apparently he did enough of it to actually sustain physical injuries on numerous fronts on numerous occasions. Gosh, well, that shows commitment to the role. And this is something we see like, a lot of actors, it's easy to mock actors, but like a lot of them do like to get very physical with their roles. I think like in the Lord Sometimes, of the Rings, yeah. in the Lord of the Rings films, I think there's all kinds of bumps and scrapes and broken bones from those. So I know uh, Viggo Mortensen broke his toe uh, in one scene, but um, yeah. This also, is I think Tom Cruise stuff. also does most, if not all oh, of the Oh yeah, stumps. Tom Cruise is a main actor. He's going to live forever, Paul, uh, so he doesn't count. This, this, this we know. <laughs> yeah, this like, we know he's going to live forever anyway. So like, we've got to think about the world we're leaving behind of Tom Cruise and all of this pool. But, um, undoubtedly, but as the film progresses, we finally get to this sort of big climax. If you don't mind me reaching towards the end of the film pool. Not at all. And the, 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 this is very much like hints of a Barak emperor that, and like the Barak emperors were not going to be around for another hundred years or so during the third century. But it's this kind of, Maximus does fit that kind of bill of being a barracks emperor like 
people love him. They want him to rule. There's very much parallels between those two there. And with this sort of rebellion taking place, you kind of see hints of that. Although this isn't the time in history where start seeing emperors appear like that. No, and one of the ways they kind of hint at that Mm. is actually early on, shortly before Marcus Aurelius is murdered by Commodus, when he encounters a couple of the more prominent Roman senators that happened to be up there near the front. And they and they said to him, you know, what are your plans going forward? And he just basically says, I just want to go back to my farm. Mm. And he, one of the uh, senators say, oh, well, you know, with an army this size and this loyal to you, you could become very political. You remember and, that yeah, scene? Yeah, I do remember. And that, once again, that's so barracks emperor of him. Like, this is something we wouldn't be seeing until the crust of the first century really started to unravel. Um, yeah. But it's interesting you had that idea here. I, we don't know if that actually historically happened, but like I said, Maximus was inspired by so many different characters, real figures from Rome's history and just people like, yeah. I mean, wasn't the first barracks ever called Maximinus? Yeah, even similar in name. Yeah, Maximinus, Maximinus Thrax. Thrax. Yeah, like an actual, like a literal commander who got support from his troops and was declared emperor. I'm sure people, if if Commodus knew what was to come, um, not Commodus, I'm sure if the people of Rome knew what was to come with Commodus, they would be more inclined to declare someone like Maximus their emperor. And he does get in touch with his troops once again towards the end of the film, and they are fully in support with him. It is. And it's interesting because you did mention this before, and I remember in re-watching this film, now knowing a lot more about this history, is the whole Cincinnatus concept. Mm. And the reason why, within the context of the story, that Marcus Aurelius would task him with this, which is to say that he's not a man of political ambition. He's no. a man that is there to serve. But even though his loyalty is to Rome, his heart is back on his farm, making him the ideal person to, you know, give Rome back to the people and the Senate and make it a Republican again. Mm. Which, once again, as we mentioned before, is total bollocks. Yeah, and do you mind me skipping towards the end for here, Paul? No, give us give us the climax. So this film ends with Maximus killing Commodus on hand-to-hand combat, and yep. I was shocked by this. We know Commodus was actually murdered. By his wrestling coach, after yeah. they tried to poison him first. Uh, I just and of find... course his wrestling coach was named Narcissus, and I remember the quip you mentioned at the time <laughs> that Commodus was assassinated by his own narcissism. Hey, yes. That's a Patrick Foot original right there. <laughs> I'm Holy very hell. proud of I'm very proud of past Patrick right there. That's some good stuff I said in the past. Well done, past you Patrick. <laughs> but like and as I said, this film, so shortly after killing Commodus, Maximus realizes my job is done here. And he goes, he goes to the farm like all good pet dogs do. Um he <laughs> he returns to the farm. Um but it it kind of ends with uh Derek Jacoby's character, Gracchus, taking the helm again. And I was just shocked by this ending because, as I say, it basically ends on, on the inclination that Rome is going to go back to being a republic. That's kind of where this film, that, that's where this film ends up. That just obviously isn't the case. And like I said, this is, this is an alternate history film, Paul. I genuinely believe this, this could, should be held in the ranks of films like yeah. The Man in High Castle. I mean, it's truly, it, it, yeah, it's right there. Yeah. It's, it's alternate history. It's historical fiction. It's even more than historical. As I mentioned, so I see historical fiction as being like 
historical fiction is fictional events that happened yeah. over real events, but this is changing those real events. Like this is huge impact on what like what's going to happen to Rome in the future. This completely changes what happens to Rome down the line. It's bonkers. It, it's totally ridiculous. And the thing is, and this is not hard to understand or even all told really that big of an issue but of course most of the public who has ever seen this movie mm. would have no idea that this was not the case and so this kind of gets to a moment that we kind of talked about a little last time when we were talking about the death of stalin mm. if you know the history or in some form or another history is your business these kind of movies can be incredibly difficult to watch. Yeah, and especially for us, we've literally just we we we've gone through this period of history in such with, detail. Yeah, with a toothpick, like, uh, and it just it screams at you. But then, conversely, there's probably historical films I've watched and not even Bath and Neither to because I didn't know the history behind them. And part of part of the fun of these AD history watches is being stuffy historians being like well actually that doesn't happen but yeah th that that's part of the fun with the, the, these we're, we're watching films like this i i agree and one of the things that's interesting though that at least this way i've kind of become thinking about it and certainly best in practice relative to what we're doing here on AD history you know the truth of the matter is one of the great parts about this despite the you know historical anachronisms is that it is also remarkably teachable because it gives you yeah. so much to dig into and say okay yeah here 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 oh yeah da, 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 da. you get the idea there's so much to be learned from it that that it's very teachable mm. i would say but i i do want to take a quick break here because we'll get more into our greater thoughts on the movie but real quick we're going to take a quick breather and us here you there and we'll be back right after a word from one Anna Domine this is the AD History Podcast keep up with the show and join the discussion by following AD History on Twitter with the handle at AD History PC and the hashtag AD History check us out over on Facebook Instagram and YouTube by searching AD History Podcast as well as of course tgnreview.com slash AD History Podcast. Also, check out the AD History Podcast on Patreon. See how you can help support the show and the rewards that await you by exploring the AD History Podcast on Patreon. See the link in the description. Now, back to Paul and Patrick. So, I would say I do enjoy this film. I, if I'm going purely from a non-historical perspective, just as a moviegoer, it's a it's a fun enough film. Um, I definitely think it probably had a lot more gravitas to it when it first released in two thousand. Um, seeing it now for the first time in twenty twenty one, we've seen much more spectacle from cinema since then. But even in the years that follow, like Lord of the Rings, like as I mentioned, that that blew this out of the water in epic and scale. Um, yeah, but it, like I said, it really is the definitive. Roman film, I think, to a lot of people, it, it hits all those classic tropes of what you'd expect a film set in ancient Rome to have. But what are your thoughts on this film, just purely from a cinematic point of view? So for millennials in particular, I think this is kind of one of the definitive Roman films mm. in, in a way that something like, say, Spartacus or The Fall of Rome could never be, mm. just given when they were released. 
So purely as a film, are there a few like little plot holes here? <clears throat> yes. Are there definitely some times when you ask yourself, why is something this way? Well, because the plot needed it to be this way. That's fine. I would say just as a film and the kind of film that it is, it gets a lot more right than it gets wrong. Yeah. Like I said, definitely show, don't tell. Keeping Maximus and how much dialogue he actually has being very rather constrained mm. is also another very good choice. The acting from everybody is superb. Mm. And it is also a story where the protagonist is incredibly sympathetic. If you're yeah. the audience, you cannot help but root for Maximus. Even his name, Maximus. Yeah. It's the quintessential it, Roman name, isn't it, Maximus? Or at least it's become that thanks to this film. As far as I know, there have been some oddities in the naming convention, but mm. for an English-speaking audience at the dawn of the 21st century, you can recognize that it's Latin, mm. and that, you know, the, the clear proximity to the word maximum mm. kind of tells you everything you need to know to the modern audience. Mm. Now, of course, some of the CG now comes off as very PS2. <laughs> we know we, we, we get that, though. It is important to remember that it was very good at the time. Yeah. Yeah. And the more you learn about the film, you realize they did take a lot of effort to also include practical effects. Mm. This wasn't just all of the all of them sitting in front of a blue or a green screen. And that's nice. Not the Phantom Menace. It is. No, definitely not. Or a lot of other stuff that's done that way today mm. for the most part. Oh, good, yes. Yeah, I much, love location yeah. shooting. I love practical effects. And obviously, like I said, the, the quality of the direction and the quality of the acting are just truly incredible. And it draws you in. Mm. You know, you don't really need to know that much to be compelled by the story. No. You just kind of need some kind of vague convention of what Rome might have been like at the time. Now... When you're in the history part of it, as we have learned so often, that these films can be very difficult to watch. And the next time we do 80 History Watches, and might I add here just real quick, that if you have a really good suggestion for the next time or upcoming 80 History Watches episodes, if you're on YouTube, definitely leave it in the comments. We want to see what else you have in mind. Back when we did the death of Stalin, there were definitely some people who gave some really quality mm. ones as well. And we saw that. We know who you are. We know what you suggested. Or if you're not on the YouTube side of things and you're just listening to this audio only on one of the podcast apps or pod catchers of your choice, email them to us, which of course is 80historypodcast at tgnreview.com. Once again, that's 80historypodcast at tgnreview.com because that's something that when we see a good suggestion, is definitely going into the repository, mm. definitely going into the, the watch list. And that's something we want to make sure that you listening to us, wherever you may be listening or watching us, as the case may be now, are fully aware of, because we always love hearing from you. So in this case, you know, it, it's interesting, because obviously we've done a lot on Rome. We know a lot about it. Even still, this is easier for me to watch, despite its inaccuracies, <laughs> Than, than some elements of what we're going to probably be doing the next time we do 80 History Watches, which, of course, is the imitation game. Yeah, I know you have a lot of issues with that film. And it's, it's history I don't actually know as well as I do the history of Gladiators. So that'd be quite interesting to have a look into. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to go over the top there. Mm. Obviously, it hits in some more important truths in general, 
specifically regarding Alan Turing and everything that went with that, if you're familiar with the story, mm. which we'll leave to another time. But I remember I saw a historian that I adore. He did a little thing for, maybe it was time, I don't mm. remember entirely what it was, or maybe it was Wired, mm. where his name is James Holland. He's both a historical author and historian, specifically the Second World War. Mm. Very good writer, very good research very charming charismatic guy and they showed him five different historical world war ii films and when he got to the imitation game because he was rating their accuracy at a scale of one to ten when he got to the imitation game he got to one he gave it one out of ten <laughs> for reasons that we'll talk sure, about yeah. at another yeah. time but that's more of a historical inaccuracy thing and in this case there are so many there are so many hmm. but if you really want to keep your sanity and just enjoy yourself for a two and a half hours and shut that part of your brain off. Gladiator does that experience better than just about anything that you can imagine. It, it, it's, it's very compelling on a human level in yeah. terms of the human story. I think that's a great way to end this, Paul. That's a great way to sum it up. If you do turn off that well-actually part of your brain and just want to enjoy a movie, Gladiator is a really good shot for that. It really does feel that. Yeah, it's, it's just a great proper movie if that sounds strange like it's just a it reminds you of that sort of golden age of hollywood style epic it's just a real throwback to that sort of thing it's just it's just a good solid flick really if you ignore the it, history it, yeah it, it definitely it definitely is at that mm. which is great because it, it because it does offer so much and i try not to let that get in the way of my enjoying it unless something is you know just so overwhelmingly egregious mm. in many ways for me this this is where the line sits patrick is you have something like the life of brian mm -hmm. or the death of stalin and neither of those are purporting to be serious in no. any way even though no. they both you know surround very serious things to be sure in their own way the issue i have is when I get to movies that are deadly serious. And this is and a deadly no serious real, film. Yeah. And there's no real tip to the audience that this is just a story. Mm. This is just a story. This is not the history lesson that you are looking for, to say the least. In this case, I don't necessarily think they're trying to do that by any means. But at the same time, that's really where things kind of make me a little nutty. But... When you put that aside, because who wants to be a dick like that for two and a half <laughs> yeah. hours? That's just not any fun. And there are a number of reasons why movies are made the way they are, why sometimes when you're trying to adapt a really popular book to film, that there are some things that just can't translate. Mm. And you have to make creative choices, you have to leave things out, you have to put new stuff in. Totally get that. But on its own merits, just as like a popcorn epic, Gladiator is among some of the best because it definitely knows how to play your emotions and it knows how to elicit the emotions it desires. Yeah. So I will say thank you to Ridley Scott. Thank you to Russell Crowe. And something we forgot to mention, thank you to Hans and Zimmer Joaquin Phoenix. and Joaquin Phoenix. And yes, yes, Hans you. Zimmer did a fantastic yeah. job with the score. Yeah, fantastic score. That's something I've got on my notes. I forgot to mention. Big thank you to Hans Zimmer as well. No, thank you for this film. It's it's wrong in all the wrong places, but right in all the right places. <laughs> it all depends, I suppose, on why you are sitting down to exactly. watch it in the first exactly. place. So, us here, you there, and we'll be back right after a word from one. Anna Domini. This is the AD History Podcast.
Well, that does it for us today. Patrick, where can people find us? You can find me personally primarily on Instagram at NameExplainYT. But you can also find me on Twitter at NameExplainYT. And of course, on YouTube, search NameExplain. What about you, Paul? In addition to my usual work at TGNR at TGNReview.com, you can find me at my Twitter handle at PKD in History, as well as my reader-submitted World War II Q&A column, The World War II Brain Bucket, where I answer all World War II-related questions, which, if you are on YouTube, we will have a link down in the description. That's all today for myself. Goodbye, thank you, and take care. Yes, thank you all so much. Until next time. Like all good things, we come to an end for today. Thank you for listening to the AD History Podcast. It is listeners such as yourself who make this show possible and truly awesome. Be sure to follow and subscribe for upcoming AD History Podcast episodes, available wherever podcasts are found. Also, follow AD History on social media. Follow the show on Twitter at the handle at ADHistoryPC as well as on Facebook by visiting facebook.com slash adhistorypodcast and Instagram as adhistorypodcast. In addition to liking and subscribing on YouTube by searching adhistorypodcast. Do you have a direct comment or question for Paul and Patrick? Drop them an email at adhistorypodcast at tgnreview.com. Also, be sure to visit the show's homepage at tgnreview.com slash adhistorypodcast. For Paul and Patrick, thank you for listening to the AD History. We'll see you again next time in the ever-growing tapestry of world history.